Get away if you've got a, a Bible to grab it. Or grab the service sheet, which has uh, the reading in it. We're just starting a, a, a new series in the book of Jonah. Uh, next five Sundays, including today, we'll be looking through uh, this book about the Old Testament uh, prophet who disobeys God. If, you, uh, if you've got a Bible and you try and find Jonah, it's worth saying that all the uh, O's on the Old Testament prophets, five O's, and they all go together, and Jonah's the last of them. So if you have an O, a prophet with the, the letter O in it, and you go to the end of that, you'll find uh, Jonah. Uh, let me uh, pray for us as we come uh, to God's word. Our Father, we uh, confess that our hearts are often uh, crooked. Uh, we confess that uh, the way we think, uh, the, what we believe, uh, is often uh, out of line of your own uh, heart. Pray you come to us uh, by your way this morning and be changing us change us in heart and mind. And we pray, Father, that where we discover our brokenness, uh, where we discover our sinfulness, you'd be, you'd be uh, also showing us how Christ uh, is our Saviour. Come to us by your Spirit, we pray. In his name, amen. I'm going to read the first uh, six verses of Jonah uh, chapter 1, but I'm going, to, I'm going to mostly preach from the first three just the first three verses, but I'll read the first six so you have a context of what happens next. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your gods. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Who swallowed Jonah? Who swallowed Jonah? Do you know the answer to that question? Who swallowed Jonah? Yeah, Emma? The big fish, very good. That's not a whale, actually, isn't it? It's a, it's a big fish. The big fish swallowed Jonah. Uh, for many of us this morning, this, the story of Jonah, how he went down and was swallowed by a big fish and three days later was thrown up, uh, is a very familiar story. Uh, in fact, I'd say it's probably even a famous story. You go outside, go to the street and ask, who swallowed Jonah? No context. I reckon you get a pretty good strike rate of people saying it was a whale, a big fish. But... Our focus on the fish in this story, which comes later on in chapter 1, uh, is for us a great distraction. Uh, the fish in the story of Jonah um, is almost a side note. It's almost the context of what happens to him. Our focus uh, shouldn't be on the fish. Our focus should be on the one who is said to appoint the fish. 
verse 17, if you've got a Bible, the Lord appointed a great fish. Uh, the Lord, in this narrative, in this book, is the main actor. He's the one who appoints the fish. He's the one who causes the fish to throw up Jonah. Uh, he's the one acting throughout the whole story. He's the one who commissions Jonah to go. He's the one who throws a storm upon Jonah in verse 4. He's the one who sees Nineveh's repentance in chapter 3 and responds by relenting from sending disaster upon them. He's the one in chapter 4, and it's a funny story when we get to it, where he makes a plant grow and wither again to teach Jonah a lesson. He is the main actor of this book. And when we focus on the fish, we tend to miss that. And these opening verses, particularly verses 1 to 3, give us a devastating backdrop on which the Lord is acting. And the devastating backdrop of the book of Jonah is that our evil rises up before the Lord. That's the first thing to think about this morning, that our evil rises up before the Lord, that our wrongdoing wafts up into heaven, and that our sin ascends before God's throne. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And Nineveh, the Assyrian city. Nineveh, the enemy of Israel. Nineveh, who is known for its barbaric cruelty. Nineveh, who is known for its love of violence. Known for enslaving and maiming and torturing prisoners. Nineveh, the great city. Nineveh, the city that reeks before God. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. When I was growing up uh, on the mission field, my parents used to go on these long car journeys, and every now and then uh, we'd get stuck behind a lorry carrying great mounds of dried fish, and the smell of the fish would drift back from the lorry as it drove forwards, and fill our car with this stench. It's not terrible. It stung our nostrils, and you'd do anything to get rid of it. So he sent the dad off in speed to get round and ahead of it. Nineveh reeks like that before God. As evil rises up before the Lord and stings his nostrils. And you can imagine the Ninevites, can't you, in their city before Jonah comes to them in chapter 3, as you'll see. You can imagine the Ninevites delighting in their evil, delighting in, in their murdering and their torturing and their conquering, delighting, in fact, in all they do wrong and saying to themselves, no one sees me. I am accountable to no one. I am, in fact, secure. There's just me and what I please to do, what I delight in, and no one sees. I am secure. But these first few verses in Jonah teaching us that that security is a false security. In fact, it's worse than that. It's blindness. It's blindness to truth that the Ninevites inhabit a world that belongs to someone else. That they inhabit a world in which they are accountable to someone else. That whether you live in Nineveh or North Korea or, or Newcastle, the Lord sees and the Lord knows. 
children. I wonder if you can remember how the beginning of Harry Potter starts. Uh, he's living with his uncle and aunt and his cousin. And he starts getting these letters. And the letters are inviting him to go uh, to Hogwarts to, to learn to be a wizard. Uh, but his, the, the, the people he's staying with, his aunt and uncle, don't, don't want him to go. So they, they move house as the letters come. They move house trying to escape these letters that are coming to him. Uh, but over the first few chapters we learn, they, they can't escape. Even when they go and hide on the furthest rock in the raging ocean, far away from civilization, even there, these letters reach Harry. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth declares the Lord. Nineveh, the great city, was secure, believing that the Lord did not see. But none of us, none of us can escape the gaze of the Lord. And isn't that a terrifying thought for you this morning? Isn't that a terrifying thought that makes your heart flutter and your knees tremble, that exposed before the Lord is all the evil in your heart? All the evil your hands have done actively, but also all the evil that you've ever thought. All the things that you've ever desired, which you know are wrong. Even the things which you've done which are wrong, which you haven't even realised are wrong, waft up before God. They all rises before him and stings his nostrils. Uh, that time where, where you allowed your mind to stray after that person who was not yours, the forbidden person, whether real natural life or for imaginary or on internet or that time where you coveted desired the house or the possession or the family or the happiness of someone else or a time where a lie slipped between your teeth and poisoned a relationship or that that secret thing that secret wrongdoing that you, you have in your heart that burns itself there which you've never uncovered to anyone it is uncovered before the Lord. The Lord sees and the Lord knows. When I was a small boy, I carelessly uh, threw a rock. In fact, I often carelessly threw rocks, but in this particular case, I carelessly threw a rock and I hit a window. I hit a pane in the window of my father's house and it shattered, cracked and shattered. And the next few hours of my life were torment. I hid from my parents. Well, more, I avoided my parents, uh, and I had a nauseous feeling in my stomach, worried that they would discover what I'd done. Of course they'd discover what I'd done. And the question in my mind uh, was always, what, what would my father say? What was my father going to do when he finds out I smashed his window? As it happens, he was uh, patient and kind with me. But if as a small boy I can be that afraid of my father that I would avoid and hide him from him. How much more, how much more should I be quaking when I realize that every inclination, evil thought in my heart rises before a God who is holy, who cannot stand the stench of sin. Sometimes in our services we use Psalm 38 as a prayer of our confession. Uh, it has some lines in it, which I think sometimes we don't quite echo in our hearts, but perhaps we can begin uh, to understand them. 
David says in Psalm 38, he asks God not to rebuke him in his anger. But he says, there's no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. He says, my iniquities have gone over my head and they are a heavy burden to me. They are too heavy for me. He says, my wounds stink and fester. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult in my heart. Sometimes, because we know as Christians the gospel of grace that God sends Christ to forgive us, we fail to remember the seriousness of sin, the appalling sinfulness of sin, and the horror that our sin rises before the Lord and that he sees and that he knows. That is the dreadful backdrop of the book of Jonah. But of course, the book of Jonah is not primarily here to terrify us. The book of Jonah is here to give us hope. And the hope that it gives us, we actually start finding these first three verses. And the hope is this. The Lord responds. Secondly, this morning, the Lord responds by sending a saviour. The Lord responds by sending a saviour. As our evil rises up before God, God reaches down in mercy. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now for the Old Testament reading for us today, that Jonah is, Jonah is an obscure figure. He appears one other time in scripture in uh, 2 Kings chapter 14, where he appears to be a faithful servant. So we don't know a huge amount about it. He's a bit of a blank slate in some ways. Uh, but the point is that the Lord calls him to go to Nineveh to be a saviour figure. Now, sometimes we might fail to see uh, the mercy there. And when we fail to see the mercy, it's because we forget that Nineveh did not deserve a warning. Uh, the drug dealer that has his uh, door knocked down and is arrested by the police and is sentenced to jail does not deserve a warning. He can't say, that's not fair. He can't say, that's not fair. He should have given me 20 minutes warning so I could get out the window through the back door, back door to the gate, and uh, escape. Nineveh did not deserve a warning, neither do we deserve a warning. The fact that we have God's word at all, warning of judgment, is itself grace. And the fact that God commissions and sends a saviour is merciful. It's the mercy that Nineveh ends up grasping in chapter 3. If, like, if, if it helps, you can picture God as a bit, bit like a merciful king. He sees a, an army of rebel peasants approaching, approaching him. And instead of sending out his army straight away to try to, to destroy and disband them, he first sends heralds and messengers warning them, saying, go, flee, disband, or you will be destroyed. It's a merciful, merciful thing to do. And it teaches us the precious truth that the Lord does not delight in the death of the wicked. And to be clear, he does delight in seeing righteousness established. He does delight in seeing sin punished and evil purged from the good world that he made. But he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He has no pleasure in condemnation, but would rather see people repent and come to him. A good judge 
does not take pleasure in the suffering of the person he condemns. He takes pleasure in the fact that justice has been established. He takes pleasure in the fact that the guilty party have been appropriately punished. But our Lord God would rather see us repent than perish. The Lord responds to our sin by sending a saviour, and that is the hope of the book of Jonah, which we'll be exploring more in future weeks. But the shock of the book of Jonah, the shock of the book of Jonah is this. Thirdly, this morning, the shock of the book of Jonah is the saviour he sends is unfit to save. The saviour is unfit to save. But Jonah, verse 3, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We last met him in 2 Kings chapter 14, where he seemed a faithful and obedient servant, but here he is disobedient, unfit for the task given to him. And he's unfit for two reasons. He's unfit because he's unwilling and he's unworthy. He's unfit because he's unwilling. He's unwilling to be a saviour. Normally when the word of the Lord comes to someone in the Bible, the next thing that happens is that they go and do whatever God asks them to do. But here the Lord says, arise and go. And Jonah arises and flees. God says, go east to Nineveh. But Jonah rises and goes west to Tarshish. Three times in verse 3 we're told Jonah is going to Tarshish. Now, where's Tarshish? But it's hard to pin down. In the days of Solomon, ships from Tarshish would come every three years bearing gold and great precious jewels. But they're coming, would be like they're coming out of the mists from the edge of the world. Even today, commentators on this passage don't really know where Tarshish is. It seems to be the edge of the known world for Jewish believers. So going to Tarshish is a bit like going to Timbuktu. Jonah is saying to the Lord, I will not do what you have asked me to do. In fact, I'll actively do, I'll actively do the opposite. You want me to go to Nineveh and, and tell them to repent, to warn them of judgment? I'll go to Tarshish so that the warning of judgment is taken from them as far as possible, so that mercy will never reach them. You see, Jonah doesn't disobey because he doesn't understand what the Lord is calling him to do. In fact, later on in chapter 4, he understands perfectly well this is a message of mercy. Jonah doesn't disobey because he's afraid of death or uh, the danger of the mission. Jonah doesn't disobey because he has a deep-seated prejudice against Gentiles in general. After all, he is going to Tarshish to live, presumably among Gentiles. Gentiles. He disobeys because he's unwilling for Nineveh to receive mercy. He's, he's unwilling to act as a saviour to them. He is repelled by his mission. In that sense, his heart is defective. He does not think God is good or wise or righteous to offer mercy to Nineveh. He has a self-righteous, proud heart. And to that extent, the spirit of Jonah is in all of us. And one of the purposes of this book, as we'll discover when we particularly come to chapter 4, is to expose where our hearts are wrong in dealing with God's grace. And we'll come to that. We'll come to that in chapter 4. But for now, it's enough to say that he is unfit to be the saviour because he is 
unwilling. His heart does not match God's heart for showing mercy to Nineveh. He's also unfit uh, because he is unworthy. Unfit because he's unwilling. Unfit because he is unworthy. Three times we're told he goes to Tarshish, uh, but twice in verse 3 we're also told that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's going away from the presence of the Lord. Now, in one sense, that is a natural reaction uh, for a heart that has hardened itself to God's words. Uh, to go to a place where the Lord is unknown, to go to a place where the Lord's word will not be preached to you, to go to a place where you will not meet God's people, and maybe you can see something about that in yourselves when you harden your heart to God's word. But there, there's something more to this fleeing than just that. Our ears, as people who know the Bible, should, should perk up when we hear that phrase, it goes away from the presence of the Lord. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when they disobeyed God and, and took, from the fruit, took the fruit from the tree they're not allowed to take from, God drives them out of the garden, away from his presence. Or a chapter later, after that, Cain and Abel, when Cain murders his brother Abel, it says there that God curses him, and Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's fleeing the presence of the Lord, moving away from the presence of the Lord, is moving into the judgment of God. Three times in the passage as well, we're told that Jonah goes down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. Later on in verse 5, it says again that he went down into the inner part of the ship. Down, down, down. Chapter 2, verse 2, when he prays to God, he says, I am, he's praying out of the belly of Sheol. Sheol, the place of the dead who go away from the Lord. Sheol is a place which has a, a hellish a hellish feel to it. But in verses 1 to 3, you not just have, we don't just have Nineveh's evil rising up before the Lord's, we also have Jonah's evil rising up before the Lord's. The question is this, the question is this, how can one who has fled from the presence of the Lord possibly bring others back into the presence of the Lord's? He can't. He is unworthy to be a saviour. Nineveh needs a saviour, and we need a saviour who is both worthy and willing. One who is of such great worth that he has the right to stand in the presence of God and bring those whom he pleases into that presence. We need a saviour whose heart matches the heart of God, who would rather see men and women saved than lost. And hallelujah, because we have such a saviour in Christ. We have such a saviour in Christ. Matthew chapter 12, if you've got a Bible, it might be helpful to turn there. Matthew chapter 12 is an incredibly important passage when we consider the book of Jonah. In Matthew 12, the Pharisees ask Jesus for a sign. Verse 38, they ask Jesus for a sign. And Jesus says, no sign will be given to them, verse 39, chapter 12, no sign will be given to them apart from the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
It's hugely significant that when Jesus looks to compare himself to an Old Testament figure, one who best matches his own ministry, he chooses Jonah. Now, children, uh, do you know what a sign is? What does a sign do? Any ideas, Yabby? Yeah, nice. It shows you something that's coming up, so it points towards something, doesn't it? A sign points towards something. And Jesus says, Jonah points towards me. When you look at him and his story, you see my ministry. He sets the pattern that I copy. Now, we'll caveat that in a minute, but just to begin with, we, we can start to hear echoes when we see that, when we see Jesus say that to us. Echoes um, in verses 1 to 3. Jonah leaves the presence of the Lord. And Jesus, in a way, also leaves the presence of the Lord. Jonah goes down. Jonah goes down and down. And Jesus also goes down. In the words of Philippians 2, Jesus leaves the presence of the Lord because he did not count the quality of God something to be grasped, but came down to earth, humbled himself down and down and down into the form of a servant, into the likeness of man. In, in these first three verses, I think we actually have an echo of what Jesus was doing when he became incarnate, when he became flesh on earth. But, but while we hear the echoes, we must also realise that the substance of what is going on in Jesus' heart and Jonah's heart it's utterly different. Jonah flees God in rebellion and disgust, but Jesus comes down to us in love and obedience. Jonah is, if you like, repulsed by sinners. He flees from them, but Jesus flees towards sinners. Jonah, Jonah runs, abandoning lost sheep to the, to the jaws of lions, but Jesus comes seeking lost sheep and rescuing them, rescuing them from lion's jaws. God grows angry with Jonah. Doesn't Jesus say in, in John chapter 10, doesn't he say, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for my sheep. And the Father says to Jesus, you, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Jesus is the, is the saviour, he, he is worthy, and he is willing to come and to save us. I think, I think one of the, just from these First few verses, one of the most striking differences between Jesus and Jonah is the heart attitude. Jonah knows something of the terrible evil of Nineveh. He knows something, a glimmer. And it's enough to harden his heart and make him run. But Jesus, the, the Son of God, he knows all things. And he knows the fullness. He knows the depth and the detail of my heart and my sin. He knows every black drop in me, and yet he still comes. It was for my sin that he sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was my sin that caused him to be appalled as he approached the cross, and still he came for me. It's marvellous to consider that as I explore the, the depth and the, and the breadth and the width of the sin in my heart, I discover more and more the depth and the breadth and the width of the love that is in Christ's heart and the love that he has for me. 
So when evil in my heart rises up before me, when I become aware of what a sinner I am, and know that that sin rises up before God and is exposed in his sight, I can say to my heart, I have Christ. I can say to myself, I have Christ. He is the anchor uh, in my storm. He is my right to come into the presence of the Lord. He came willingly. He is the one worthy to save me. And he came for me when my heart was as foul as the night. I have Christ. Whenever your sin comes before you, you can say to your heart, I have Christ. He has come for you. Question for you today, maybe if you're not a Christian, have you come to him? But if you are a Christian, do you continue to come to him daily? To come to him for grace? Do you rest your weary, sin-laden, sin-burdened heart in him? Let me pray for us. Our Father, it is a terrifying and humbling thought to know that we are exposed for your sight. That every black thought in our hearts and minds rises up before you. And yet it is more amazing that instead of blotting us out, instead of sending disaster upon us as you have every right to do as a holy God who made us, instead you respond in mercy and send Christ to us, Christ who is for us a better Jonah, he comes willingly because he loves us. Father, I pray that where our hearts are weary in sin, where we do struggle with the thoughts in our minds, that we would come to Christ day in, day out, that he'd be our refuge and our strength in all that we do. We pray that for his glory and his sake, in his name. Amen.